Good day, everybody, and welcome to this week's episode of Cliff Notes from the Global Manufacturing Picture. I'm Cliff Waldman. I'm the host of this show, one of many on Manufacturing Talk Radio. It is a little after 11 a.m. on the east coast of the United States. It's August the 31st. We're coming toward the end of summer. In the past few episodes uh, for this historic period of time, I have been trying to give readers a sense of the very difficult economic and picture uh, that we are dealing with, the very uncertain economic picture. But I have also been trying to get you to look into the future, beyond this period. Structural changes are going to make your economic and um, business life much different in the next 10 years than it was in the past 10 years. So we're concerned about the Fed, we're concerned about inflation, we're concerned about recession, but I want to deal with all those things, but I also want to take a look at the future. In our July episode, we looked at the global population picture, something that I've done quite a bit of writing on. The United Nations put out its most recent world population prospects. I gave you the high points and discussed what it would matter for manufacturers doing business in the global world. Today, our subject is going to be another issue that is going to very much affect the current global economic picture with all its uncertainties and all its confusion, but it's also going to matter a great deal going into the coming decades. And that is the power of China has certainly been a defining feature of the current era of globalization. The question, though, is what's going on with China? Is China's global economic dominance waiting? Is there going to be a China economic and perhaps even political crisis in our immediate or near-term future? It's a complicated topic, so I'm going to do as I always do. We're going to divide and conquer, and we're going to look at seven distinct sections, seven distinct points in thinking about China. First of all, I'm going to review with you signs of considerable economic weakening, weakening and weakness in China. Don't usually in past years we haven't uh, usually associated China with economic weakness, more with economic strength, but I'm going to talk about definite signals of weakness. I'm going to talk about the short-term sources of weakness, what's going on right now. I'm going to look at one long-term source of weakening of the economy, and that is demographics. After all this, we're going to go beyond economics, and we'll talk a little bit about political and geopolitical instabilities that might very well feed into economic uncertainty and economic weakness in China. We'll talk about a short-term forecast. What might the short-term future hold for China? I'll give you the key long-term questions that you ought to be asking for China's future beyond this tumultuous period in the global economy. And then I'll finish up by talking about some implications of China's tumult, China's concern, China's changes for U.S. manufacturing. So let's get going with talking about an economy, a Chinese economy that is weakening. Now, to really do this, you have to take the long-term view. And I'm going to throw some numbers at you. The point of which is to get you to see that China's economy has, it has been weakening for quite some time now. It's not just a post-COVID story. China's uh, just prior to the global financial crisis, going all the way back to 2007, China's GDP growth was 
14.2%. It slowed quickly during the financial crisis to 9.6% in 2008 and 9.4% in 2009. With the aid of considerable fiscal stimulus, by many measures what was the largest at the time in the world, annual GDP growth in China rebounded to 10.6% in 2010. But since 2010, there has been a persistent and significant downward trend in economic growth in China. Growth slowed to 7.4% by 2014, and then continued to slow to 6% in 2019, just before the onset of the global pandemic. As a result of the pandemic shock, growth slowed to 2.2% in 2020. While it quickly rebounded to 8.1% in 2021, growth has been showing significant weakness in recent quarters and it is, and is estimated by the International Monetary Fund to be accepted 4.4% for all of 22. When all this year is over, we will see just a little bit above 4% growth in China. These are the numbers we've, not, we've associated with the old China. Clearly, a significant slowdown has become a feature of the Chinese economic outlook, and it has done so well before, years before the pandemic. China's export growth, long a source of economic strength, has contributed to the slowing of GDP growth. Now, again, some numbers here, but you've got to take a long-term look at the story. Annual growth in the volume of goods and services exports contracted by nearly 11,009. It was a terrible moment. 2009 was a terrible moment for the global economy. But then Chinese um, exports rebounded to 28.5% in 2010. Total export growth has since slowed dramatically to 4.3% by 2014, before contracting, actually, by 2.2% in 2015. Average export growth really didn't do much better after that. Between 2016 and 2019, just before the pandemic, export growth was a on average was a tepid 3.3%. During 2020, total export growth was 2.1% before recovering to 18.1% in 2021. Export growth has slowed dramatically this year and is estimated to be a weak 2.3% when all of 2022 is over and accounted for. Well, China has one interesting difference for the current period between China and the rest of the world. While China has experienced minor inflation episodes in the past, it does not, seemingly enough, by contrast to the United States and much of the Western world. The average change in consumer prices reached a recent peak of only 2.9% in 2019 before slowing to 2.4% in 2020 and 0.9% in 2021. Consumer inflation is estimated to be only 2.1% for 2022. Result of that, monetary stimulus was not a hard choice for China. On Monday, August 22nd, the People's Bank of China, their central bank, trimmed its five-year prime rate to 4.3% from 4.45%, and its one-year loan prime rate to 3.65% from 3.65% in 
from 3.7%. The week before, the People's Bank of China lowered the rate of its one-year medium-term lending facility to some financial institutions by 10 basis points. I think this is an indicator that they are getting very worried about slowing growth. And in particular, one aspect of slowing growth, which I will cover in just a second. All right. That's a good way, a segue to say, talk about what are some of the short-term weaknesses, short-term sources of the weakness that we're seeing right now, the post-2021, the post-pandemic weakness that we're seeing right now in China. And then we'll go long-term after that. I would say there are three of them. Global challenges, zero COVID policy, and the property story. Let's start with global challenges. China could not, even under the best of circumstances, China was not going to be immune to the significant economic challenges facing the global economy in this post-COVID period. The U.S. and much of the advanced world has been confronting multi-decade highs in inflation and, and the elevated recession risks that come from monetary tightening. Also, the Russia-Ukraine war has exacerbated challenges throughout the globe with supply chains, with inflation, and with global demand and global growth in general. All of these challenges have created a risk-off mentality in financial markets, which has negatively impacted consumer and business confidence. So the globe is weakening. There's a concern, and I think a legitimate one, about a global recession. And China is certainly not going to be immune from that. But then beyond that, there are two significant China-specific issues that are exacerbating its weakness this year, in the present period, even after years and years of flowing. Particular weakness in this year is coming from two things. It's zero COVID policy and the challenges of its property sector. China's zero COVID policy, which has gotten much media attention, has both bewildered and angered China watchers both inside and outside of China. In China, this, these draconian COVID lockdowns have uh, had a negative impact on consumer economic confidence and I think on consumer political confidence. We'll talk about that one shortly. The economy grew by 2.5% in the first half of 2022, very weak for China, and way below the 5.5% annual target set by the government. According to The Economist magazine, consumer confidence in the second quarter of 2022 in China was the lowest on record. That's the damage, at least the psychological damage, done by these very, very draconian and many think unnecessary COVID lockdowns. And it's had a real impact on the economy. In July, inflation-adjusted retail sales shrank. Imagine that in China. The Peterson Institute for International Economics, which if you follow the globe, you should follow what Peterson's articles and what Peterson has to say, they raise the question about whether these zero COVID policies are going to decouple China from the rest of the world. That's Laconian. That's that's a difficult forecast, but it's not a it's not out of range in my view. 
because these zero-COVID policies have been all but stepping on China-centered supply chains. Think of the many industries that that affects, from pharmaceuticals to electronics and many things in between. These zero-COVID policies have significantly hampered supply chains in the world of already difficult supply chain problems. Let's talk about the property sector. The one time I visited China in 2006 and had a chance to walk through Shanghai, you saw every spot of land being built upon. I never, even even as somebody who grew up in New York, I've never seen buildings and land usage like this for buildings. And I just flew away thinking that there was going to be a reckoning, and I think the reckoning of over of an overbuilt over-leveraged property sector is starting to hit China and hit it hard. Sales of residential property fell by over 28% in July on a year-over-year basis. According to the, uh, by the reporting of The Economist magazine, many distressed developers lacked the cash to complete construction, and they could no longer find anyone to lend it to them. That smacks of a 2008 problem. Now, there is a big debate um, about whether or not China is facing a financial crisis similar to what the Western world had in 2008, but it at least brings it uh, to the back burner, if not to the front burner, and creates fears of it. Further With all of this, further monetary stimulus seems likely, especially in the absence of any significant domestic inflation in China. What about longer-term sources of growth? We know the the difficulties of the present moment. But one of the reasons China's – there's been many reasons. One of the reasons that China's economy has been slowing for years now, since 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 2010, really, is that its demographics – are showing a rapidly aging and population, slowing population growth rate. I have published in this area. I will continue to write and to follow this area, but the the adage is that people are becoming afraid that China is, quote, growing old before it grows rich. Excuse me. China's fertility rate has been below the population replacement rate of 2.1 since 1992. In 2019, just before the pandemic hit, China's fertility rate was 1.7 births per woman, well below the 2.1 births required for population replacement. India, by contrast, the fertility rate in India, by contrast, was 2.2%. What that means is that China's population is, is slowing and maybe perhaps declining. India's population is increasing. The United Nations demographic team predicts that it's not too long, probably by the end of this decade, before India replaces China as being the world's most populated country. We're going to have an episode on that. What does it mean for manufacturers? What does it mean for Asian um, economic dynamics. Big story there. We'll come back to it. Also, in China, the percent of the population over 65 has consistently climbed from 8.1% in 2010 to more than 12% in 2021. (coughs) 
All this points to a slowing of labor force growth and an increase in public expenditures needed to support an aging population. Now, why does this matter? Well, I have often said that it's the most important equation in macroeconomics, and that's a, it's a very simple one. Long-term sustainable economic growth is simply the sum of labor productivity growth and the growth of labor hours. With China's population growth slowing, with its fertility falling, with its labor force growth slowing, the growth of labor hours is going to slow dramatically, and therefore China's economy isn't just slowing because of the difficulties of the moment, but it has been slowing for many years structurally because of its demographic changes, which are only going to get more difficult. And in the meantime, the Chinese government has growing fiscal and social challenges with an aging population on its hands. All right. Let's think beyond economics for just a second, into politics and geopolitics. All of this is going to matter for the, the, uh, the picture right now in China and the economic picture going forward. Growing tensions with the United States and Taiwan have complicated an already dicey economic picture, given the likely impact of the Taiwan-U.S.-China tensions on supply chains, inward direct investment, as well as location decision-making within East Asia. Also, China's, let's call it, uncomfortable alliance with Russia only serves to elevate these tensions. Yesterday, now, yesterday it was announced that China will hold its 20th Communist Party conference starting October 16th. Xi Jinping is expected now. Xi Jinping is expected to really sail to a third leadership term without much opposition. But I will tell you, in my view, that the question of public dis- discontent, which has gotten louder, frankly, over the COVID lockdowns as well as the dramatic slowing in the economy, is at least there beneath, burning beneath the political surface. Is the political pot going to boil? My question for the China watching community is, will this period of time, COVID, but also the breaking of the property sector, the slowing growth, will this period of time with all of the challenges change Chinese politics? China economic watchers, manufacturers who are looking at China as a business market, as a location, really need not just to follow economic variables, the strength of demand, all the things that businesses and economists would follow, but politics, although we take it as a given in China, I think even while, while there's not going to be much eventfulness at this coming party conference, I think going forward there's going to be a simmering discontent from the population, which might have some interesting implications. All right, let's talk about the short-term outlook. I don't have a real number to give you because it would be intellectually dishonest. There's too many unknowns. But let me tell you what I think generally about the short-term picture, given all of this. Strong monetary and fiscal policy stimulus is definitely in the short-term cards for China. 
particularly since they don't have an inflation problem. Is, and Chinese, China policy similar tends to work. It tends to work very well. It's shown itself to. But will further COVID lockdowns, and they seem to be, to be a distinct possibility, every day they seem to be a distinct possibility, along with escalating tensions with U.S. and Taiwan, will all of that negate some of the effects from the stimulus, which I'm pretty sure is coming, the further stimulus I'm pretty sure is coming? And is there a financial crisis brewing from the property sector? That question is going to continue to haunt us. Certainly seems like there's the potential of it, the, the nervousness over Evergrande, the, uh, you know, the failure to be, uh, the, the liquidity dry up. But on the other hand, China's the, um, private sector has a much higher savings rate that can sort of cushion the potential of a financial crisis. It's uncertain, but it's got to watch. For now, my conclusion is that the downside risk for Chinese economic performance are much, much larger than the upside potential. It is likely, therefore, at least in the coming couple of years, that East Asia outside of China, East Asia outside of China, will become increasingly promising areas for inward investment and new supply chains. And I'll tell you, even if the Chinese economy returns to a more stable growth path, the days of double-digit growth in China, double-digit economic growth in China, I think are over for good. It's even with all of the world's problems solved right now, all of the political and geopolitical tensions solved right now, demographic changes in China are going to put a real cap on long-term growth, and I don't think we're going to really be seeing double-digit growth ever again, probably, in China. All right, so what about, what about the long-term questions? That, that's, you know, my best take on, on the short-term story. What's the long-term questions? My question is, is the China economic political model frame? Remember, the, the party was concerned about youth on, in the 70s and the 80s, about rising youth unemployment in the urban areas, about the fact that they lost a lot of credibility with um, the Cultural Revolution and the Great Leap Forward, which killed many, many people. And they, in effect, not directly, in effect, made a pact with the people. We want to retain an autocratic government, but we'll give you a hybrid economy that has some market characteristics. For a while, that covenant worked beautifully. It was the, the success and the envy of the world in some ways. But has the COVID era broken this covenant? Now, if it has, does the future, and I wouldn't say the near-term future, hold more statism, autocratic, uh, you know, autocratic uh, economics and less market economics as dictated by political pressures, or will economic pressures favor more market freedom? Interesting story here. Political pressures would suggest more of a statist, autocratic economic policy, more of a real communist, centrally planned story, but economic pressures may suggest more need for market solutions, which one is going to, to win out? Interesting story. Don't have an answer, but that's a question to follow. What does also the current period and all its difficulties suggest about a rebalancing 
toward more domestic-led growth, which China appears to have been interested in in past years. That, too, is going to be a question, and part of it is going to depend on their development of a social safety net, of unemployment insurance, social security, because all of those things support the consumer spending that they are going to need, particularly in in an aging population, and particularly in an aging population, to support the kind of consumer spending that allows for a rebalancing growth of growth away from export-oriented growth toward more domestically dependent growth. This happens to an economy when it matures. All right. Let me give you a few. There are probably many implications that will make themselves apparent for U.S. manufacturing with all this. But let me give you a few basic implications of, of this complex and tumultuous story in China right now for U.S. manufacturing. For one thing, if China's economic performance is going to be weaker, just even structurally weaker, beyond all the the bullets flying around right now, the strength of global growth could be diminished. China had such a big impact on global economic performance that if its performance is weakening, it's definitely going to be scaled back, it's going to be weaker going forward, then the strength of global growth is going to be diminished. And for a U.S. manufacturing sector that, you know, is playing the globe for supply chains, for new markets, that's going to have an impact. Secondly, for U.S. manufacturers, with many, all of China's economic and political and geopolitical problems, it's going to be a new location, location decision-making calculus within East Asia. China is going to be less the location, the, uh, the absolute location of choice when U.S. manufacturers decide where they're going to put a greenfield plant, where they're going to store, where they're going to procure from. Vietnam may be the beneficiary. India might be a rising star. We may see some new rising stars in Asia and in East Asia, but China is going to become less the uh, the location of choice. All of this, all of this collectively, is going to add even more compl- uh, complexity to supply chain challenges, and in an era of already very difficult supply chain challenges post COVID. So I would say, in summary, the emerging period of globalization may very well be far less China centered. We'll keep you on top of this story. It's a critical one for U.S. manufacturers. Until then, this is Cliff Waldman saying we'll see you next time. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.